Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everybody. And I would like to say especially uh, hats off to the award winners, the students are here tonight, but especially to the teachers. I don't, I don't think I'll get much argument with the following statement. I think our teachers are the most important people in our society who are doing the most important work. And yes, they should be paid more and they should be given a lot more of our attention, appreciation, and help because we're in it too. This country was founded on a belief in education. It begins before we had a constitution, begins before we had a revolutionary war. Thomas Jefferson said any nation that expects to be ignorant and free expects what never was and never will be. <laughs> and we are, we are in conflict today with a force that believes in enforced ignorance. We don't. One of the lessons of history, one of the most obvious lessons of history and one of the obvious lessons of life is that nothing much is ever accomplished alone. When you set out to write a book and when you have a new book published, such as this new book of mine, The Greater Journey, it has the author's name up here, but the author is only one of the people who've worked to make this book possible. There are art directors, editors, agents, people who uh, help with the uh, graphic interior inclusions in the book, the maps, all of that. And there are the people that work with the author, research assistants, typists, all of that. And the people with whom the author works in libraries and archival collections, the Library of Congress, the National Archives, the, the libraries at our great universities and there are the people in his family. No one has helped more, done more, given me more inspiration and guidance than my editor-in-chief, my wife, my hero, <laughs> Rosalie Barnes McCullough, and I'd like her to stand up and say hello. Most people, most Americans, even most educated Americans, tend to forget the effect of France on our story as a people. They, they know about the heritage and the traditions and the language and the history that comes down to us from our English backgrounds. But the French part of it is underestimated and underappreciated. But consider the following. We have a capital city designed by a Frenchman, Pierre L'Enfant. With the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon, we more than double the size of the country. At our great port of entry, New York stands the symbol of all that we represent and believe in, our symbol of affirmation, the Statue of Liberty, a gift from France by the great French sculptor Bartholdi. Look at the map of the United States. Look at the names of cities and towns and rivers and streets that have French names. You have it right here in Texas, Beaumont, Texas, Paris, Texas. And I understand 
There's a Mars Sales Avenue right here in Dallas. <laughs> we don't necessarily pronounce it the way the French do. And nobody's going to brag about having a son playing on the football team at Notre Dame, but there, it's part of us, much more than we realize. At the surrender of Cornwallis at the end of the Revolutionary War, the army under General Rochambeau was larger than the army under George Washington. We could not have carried on with the war for more than eight years without the financial backing of France. There are more Americans buried in France, in our military cemeteries there, than any other country in the world except our own. It is sacred ground for all of us, or should be. But there's another huge influence on our story, besides the presence of the French here or our presence there in time of war. And that is the influence of all that was learned by those who went there seeking to, to improve themselves in their chosen professions, their chosen path in life. They, were the, they went because they were ambitious to excel, not ambitious to be rich or powerful or famous, but to excel to be the best that was in them. And they didn't go to make a social splash, and they didn't go as tourists, or they didn't go to have a wonderful time, just though some of them did some of that too. They went because they needed it. Samuel F.B. Morse, who went to Paris as a painter, very gifted painter, had, having no idea that while he was in France, he would come up with a the idea of the telegraph. He went, as he said, because he needed Paris. They were men, women. They were mostly young. They were white, black, Christian, Jews. They were all Americans. And they had this desire, this, this desire, as Augustus St. Gaudens said, to soar into the blue that propelled them. And it wasn't easy for them to go. Those who went in the 1830s and early 1840s went on sailing ships. It took a month at best. There were no, there were no ships for passengers. You booked a room, a cabin on a freight boat, two-masted freight boat. And the food was dreadful, and the quarters were cramped. There was nothing to do. And there was a very good chance you not make, might not make it. And when you landed, this is in the case of 90% of them. You were in a foreign country for the first time in your life. You were on foreign soil, and you also suddenly found you were the foreigner. One of the characters in my book says, it's a very strange feeling to find yourself a foreigner. Now, I had to choose who would be included in my cast of characters to tell this story, because you can't tell about the story of all of them who went. It would become a catalog, not a book. So I chose those people that fulfilled certain criteria. One is that they, they had to be people of exceptional ability, but yet were not certain, yet not quite certain, where that ability might take them, or if their ability was overrated, because they'd never been among the really top people. <coughs> and I also wanted those people, <coughs> excuse me, who, sorry, thank you. I wanted those people who had a story in themselves and who were changed by the experience and who wrote their story down on paper, in diaries or letters. Many people have asked me, uh, if I've spent a great deal of time in Paris, thank you very much, in Paris working on this book, doing the research. Yes, I've spent some time in Paris, but not as much as one might suppose because the material, the research, is all here. The letters and the diaries, the memoirs that are in the great collections, and some of which uh, you've worked with or know about yourselves. Some of the material came from here, Texas. And that to me is a joy. It's a joy to read all this material, and it's also a joy to realize how superbly those people handled the English language.
how beautifully they wrote. And most of them were not aspiring writers. They weren't ever imagined themselves as writers. Many of them had no education as we know it. They were stopped education when they were 12, 14 years old, and yet they wrote beautifully. And one of the reasons is that letting, writing letters was part of the way of life then. You were expected to write letters. You did write letters. It would be vastly impolite and rude and showing no gratitude if you did not write letters to your parents or those who were making what you were doing possible. Now, if you went to Paris then to study at the Sorbonne, the great university of the Sorbonne, the greatest university in the world then, or you went to the Ecole de Médecine, the medical college, the greatest medical college in the world, once you got there, tuition was free. The French government had a policy that all foreigners could attend these universities for free. So all you had to pay for was your passage over and back, your food and lodging. One of those who went was a young boy, a street kid really, Irish street kid from, this, from Boston, whose name was George Healy. And George Healy was um, uh, 19 years old, excuse me, just over 20 when he went over. And he, he'd had no education beyond about 12 years old. And he was bound and determined he was going to become a painter. And, and he knew no one in France, and he had no money, but that didn't hold him back. I want to read you uh, what he said. I'm sorry. I've... But what he said was, what he said was that I had a great sum of courage and a great sum of inexperience. And often inexperience is of great help <laughs> because he didn't know what he could be in for. Now, George Healy is not a name that's very familiar to many people, even art historians. George Healy went to study painting George Healy's works now hang everywhere. There are seven Healy paintings hanging in the White House, including the great painting of Abraham Lincoln hanging over the mantelpiece in the state dining room. There are 17 of his works in the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, he painted the greatest pig painting of Abraham Lincoln in Springfield very shortly after uh, Lincoln was elected president at the time when Lincoln had no beard, so we have the first and most memorable portrait of the man before the weight of all that he would have to endure through the years of war fell upon him. Augustus St. Gaudens was another young American, the, the son of a, an immigrant shoemaker, another street kid, streets of New York, who was put to work by his father when he was 13 years old, and it was determined he was going to become a sculptor. His works of sculpture now are in all of our major centers in the East. The Shaw Memorial, which is the tribute to the 54th Regiment, Massachusetts Regiment, the first all-black regiment to serve in the Civil War, the subject of the film Glory. The Shaw Memorial is, to, in the view of many of us, uh, the greatest single work of sculpture by an American sculptor anywhere. He's famous also for his statue of grief, the memorial statue to uh, the wife of Henry Adams, which stands in Rock Creek Park Cemetery, a very mysterious and uh, haunting figure. He did the great statue of General Sherman and the Goddess of Victory, which stands at the corner of 59th and 5th Avenue in New York City at the entrance to Central Park, which I believe is the greatest equestrian statue in the, in the country. He did the great statue of Admiral Farragut, which stands down on Madison Square. He did the great standing statue of Abraham Lincoln in Chicago. In other words, he's recording history, just as George Healy was recording history with his portraits. They too are part of the process of recording what we consider to be important, memorable, worth knowing about in time to come. 
that Shaw Memorial will remind people of the sacrifice of those black troops forever. And we don't know enough about Augustus St. Gaudens or George Healy or Samuel F.B. Morse or James Fenimore Cooper or Harriet Beecher Stowe or Elizabeth Blackwell. The lame Elizabeth Blackwell means almost nothing to anyone. She was the first American woman to become a physician. And how did she do it? Braving the adverse uh, barriers in her way as a woman to becoming a physician. She went to Paris to study medicine. So did Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the father of Justice Holmes, who was one of the great poets and essayists of his time and the founder of the Atlantic Monthly Magazine, but who also devoted his entire life to medical science and saw no incongruity in that, no contradiction of terms. Everything was interesting. Poetry, essays on everything, medicine. Oliver Wendell Holmes taught medical science, taught anatomy at Harvard Medical School for over 36 years. And when he retired, and gave his farewell speech. Thinking back over all that he ex had experienced, all of his years at Harvard, both as an educator and as a student, what did he choose to talk about? The teacher who had impressed him, inspired him most during the years when he was studying medicine in Paris, Dr. Louis. This in many ways is a book about teachers because with very few exceptions, every one of these young people who came back transformed by the experience in Paris went on to teach, to teach medicine, to teach art, to teach writing, to teach what they knew best. One of them who came back would teach the country about an idea that he brought home from Paris and that was Charles Sumner. In the public garden in Boston, the center of the city, there's a statue to Charles Sumner, very fine statue. It just says Sumner on it. I doubt that there's one Bostonian in a thousand who has any idea who he was. They probably think he built the Sumner Tunnel, which goes out to <laughs> Logan Airport. Charles Sumner was the great, most powerful voice for abolition in the United States Senate prior to the Civil War and during the war. Charles Sumner was so powerful in his, his elo elocution, his, his eloquence in favor of abolishing slavery that he very nearly paid with his life for it, was almost beaten to death on the floor of the Senate by a congressman from South Carolina, Preston Brooks, using a heavy Gouda Percha walking stick, supposedly a stick that would not break and he broke it over Sumner's head and back, hitting him 30 times, attacking him from behind. That attack was one of the worst of, 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 all, of the, all incidents ever to occur on the floor of either of our houses in Washington. Appalling. And he never got over it, physically or psychologically. But what had happened in Paris was as a student at the Sorbonne, he had noticed how in the lecture halls, in all, in all of the activities of students in and about the university, that the black students were treated exactly as anyone else, dressed the same, acted the same, and that they had the same kinds of aspirations that he had. And he wrote in his journal, I wonder if the way we treat black people at home, at home has to do with what we've been taught and, not, and is not part of the natural order of things. It was a, an epiphany. He came home determined he was going to do something about it and did he ever. So what these people brought back is important brought back figuratively and literally, brought back masterpieces that they created there, like the Sherman statue in New York, made in Paris, like the great uh, painting of Daniel Webster's reply to Senator Hayne, which hangs as the backdrop, fills the whole stage at Faneuil Hall, one of the three or four most important historic destinations in the country. Done by George Healy, that boy from the streets of Boston 
and there it is. And it was painted in Paris. The portrait, the painting that Samuel Morse did inside the Louvre, it's called the Gallery of the Louvre, one of the masterpieces of American art and, and his greatest masterpiece, was done under the most extreme terrifying conditions in Paris at the, at, in the midst of a cholera epidemic, the first cholera epidemic that ever struck Europe. And he went every day knowing that they, people were dying in the streets outside the walls of that great museum, knowing that he himself could die at any moment. 18,000 people died in less than six months in Paris alone from cholera. And yet his friend James Fenimore Cooper, the author of The Last of the Mohicans and other great American novels, who was in Paris also, couldn't escape, couldn't get out of the city because his wife was too ill to move her. Morse would, wouldn't leave because his money was running out and he, he was determined he was going to finish before the Louvre closed for the summer in late August. Cooper came to be with Morse as he was up on his scaffold making copies of all these masterpieces, came to the, to the Louvre every single day to keep Morris, Morris's, uh, keep him company, but to keep his courage up to finish the painting. It's the story of a friendship at the, being tested in the most extreme fashion. A friend in need was indeed a friend in the form of James Fenimore Cooper. There are the stories of Mary Cassatt, the life of Mary Cassatt, the woman, very talented, gifted painter from Philadelphia who, who was determined that she wouldn't just be a woman who paints, but would be a painter who was the first American taken in by the Impressionists as one of them and who became one of the great painters in American history, whose masterpieces are everywhere, including your own uh, museum here in Dallas. John Singer Sargent, boy prodigy, a, a phenomenon at age 18. The Parisians themselves, the French masters themselves, were awestruck by this young American's talent. Trained in Paris, lived in Paris, made, painted several of his best known and most important works in Paris when he was still in his 20s. Louis Gottschalk, the first American to perform solo on stage in Paris ever at age 15. Another prodigy, pianist from New Orleans, a kid, and Chopin and others all came to see him and marveled at his ability. His music is still played. These were very important Americans and their stories are as important in many ways as those of the politicians and the generals because politics and the military is not only what history is about. I wanna read you something that John Kennedy said, something that we all ought to take to heart. Students, teachers, grandparents, parents, citizens of our country. It's written on the wall at the Kennedy Center for the arts in Washington, DC. This country cannot afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. The life of the arts, far from being an interruption, a distraction in the life of a nation, is very close to the center of a nation's purpose and is a test of the quality of a national civilization. I look forward to an America which commands respect throughout the world, not only for its strength, but for its civilization as well. We all know that many civilizations of ancient times whose, whose importance is never underestimated, that what we know most about them is their art. It may in some cases be all that we know about them, the only part of that society that we know about. So that Gershwin is as important as General Phil Sheridan, let's say. Winslow Homer, Willa Cather, Mark Twain, Stephen Foster, all just as important to America as all the other history that we're proud to know about. In many ways, it speaks to the, for the soul of America in a way nothing else does. So for me, embarking on this book four years ago, 
was a chance to explore and learn from the experience of a group of people that I have long admired and that I feel, feel we all should know a considerable more about and draw examples and learning from them in a way that we have not so far. I don't know which of them I would say fascinated me most or I enjoyed most, but in many ways I think Augustus St. Gaudens, the sculptor, the immigrant shoemaker's son, is the one that is so appealing because it's such an American story of rising up from nothing to become something quite miraculous. He was in Paris three different times, first as a student, then as a young uh, married American with his bride, Gussie St. Gaudens, as she was called, and then later when he was back just at the turn of the century from 1899-1900 to do his great uh, Sherman masterpiece, the equestrian Sherman in New York. When he was knew it was time to go come home, he wrote a letter to a friend, another artist, that painter named Will Lowe. And here's what he wrote, because I think it says so much about all of them. In effect, it's the summing up that could be offered from all of them uh, as what made the event, events and the time there so important to them personally and to our country. Dear old fellow, St. Gaudens told Will Lowe, coming back to Paris has been a wonderful experience and surprising in many respects, one of which was to find how much of an American I am. I belong to America, he continued. This is my home. So much that he'd found unbearable about New York before was now exactly what he longed for. He was unabashedly homesick. The elevated road dropping all oil and ashes on the idiot below, he wrote in New York, the cable cars, the telegraph poles, the skyline and all that have become dear to me. Everything he was trying to get away from. To say nothing of attractive friends, the scenery, the smell of the earth, the peculiar smell of America. Up to my visit here, I felt as if I was working in a fog. I, know not where, I knew not where I was. This is dispelled. I see now my ground clearly. I've acquired a strange feeling of confidence that I never have felt before, and which, oh, irony may mean that I'm losing ground, and together with a respect for what we are, doing at home. In fact, I shall return home a burning, hot-headed patriot. <laughs> These were not people escaping their country because they were disenchanted with it. This is not the lost generation. These are people whose love of their country is one of the, one of the propelling spurs for them to go in the first place and then to come back and give back so much that they've learned and how very much we can learn from them. We have floor mics and uh, we'll take just as many questions as we can over the course of the next few minutes. And there's a floor mic, I believe, there. It's very hard to see and one there. Yes, sir, your question. Mr. McCullough, this question does not concern this book. <laughs> well, full disclosure. Um, in your opinion, why are so many people who think of themselves as intellectuals and artists drawn to collectivism and statism and even pacifism? Oh, I thought you were going to ask a hard question. <laughs> uh, 
I think we'll get to that in the next semester. Uh, <laughs> much too big a question for me to answer uh, without sounding very glib and superficial, and uh, I'd, re I'd prefer not to uh, leave that impression. Let's have another question. Thank you, sir, uh, so much for your service to our country. Uh, I have two questions. First one is, uh, you're showing uh, in your remarks how much America has to thank France for the establishment of our country. Why do you think there's so much anti-French sentiment? When I was in the Marine Corps, we would often joke that the next uh, loser of a major world war keeps France. Uh, so there's a lot of this type of uh, feeling um, that I saw with my comrades in the Marine Corps. Second sure. question is, is um, with um, you know this uh, uh, sense of obligation, do you think there is a movement to bring that culture back of, of bringing people over to, to France to learn more about uh, different cultures? And, and, and on that note, if France was so open-minded to bring people from different cultures and so on, uh, so on, why did you have such a huge rise of anti-Semitism, the Dreyfus Affair, de Gard, and then of course later on with Pétain and uh, Vichy France? What happened? Why did it change? What are you feeding these people? Yeah. <laughs> One of the risks one faces in my position here is that very often the, the person who's asking a question is making a small speech. And uh, it may be uh, uh, expressing a position or an attitude with which I don't agree or with which I could uh, debate at length. Let me just take, I hope I can do this, your two, the two parts of your question. I would say that people who are, um, uh, have, have antipathy or a uh, less than fond feeling for France and the French have probably never been there. Um, they've certainly never had dinner there. Uh, and they've never walked in the Tuileries Gardens or been inside the Louvre Museum or uh, or just uh, enjoyed uh, an afternoon stroll through the uh, uh, old quarters of the left bank or along the Seine. Um, uh, I think that it's one of the most cosmopolitan and endlessly absorbing and uplifting uh, crossroads of the world. And we believe today, let us hope, and we are encouraging this in among our students in a world outlook. That's what this whole organization is about. And anybody who closes their, their uh, affections against France or the French is to be pitied. You're just missing an enormously grand and illuminating experience in, in the education of, uh, that we all experience through all of our lives, not just in school. Uh, yes, the French have been difficult at times, and yes, we have been difficult at times. I think that, that uh, some of the pronouncements by some of our uh, most uh, high-ranking officials in our government in uh, the last uh, couple of decades have been inappropriate and rude and unfortunate. Um, I don't speak French. I, I don't really read French. I can get through sort of basic headlines in the first paragraph of, of the morning papers. But Rosalie and I have been going to Paris for 50 years. We've been traveling in France for over 50 years. Never once has anybody there ever been the least bit rude or unfriendly toward us because we don't speak French, because we also make it clear that we're trying to learn French, that we want to know how to pronounce the word correctly. And we try to resist that great American impulse that if they don't understand what we're saying in English, to shout it louder. Uh, let's take a question on this side. Thank you. And let's make them questions if possible. Thank you. I will do my best. Uh, sir, uh, simply, you concentrated on artists primarily. And 
I absolutely agree with you that there was a great deal of encouragement in France. Often in America, we believe that the uh, love of the French for the Americans came after the wars. I believe it differently. Edgar Poe is considered a finer writer in France than in America because Baudelaire I bet there's a question there. translated him. <laughs> Where, what, what was the source of the respect? Because it was great and it was deep in your study. Excuse me, that was longer than it should have been. Well, I, I differ with what you, what you said. First of all, James Fenimore Cooper was the most popular American writer ever up until that point, and the French adored his novels. They read them all. They were to be seen in displayed in the windows of Paris uh, for years and during the seven years that he lived there. And uh, I do, don't concentrate primarily on, on painters. I include James Fenimore Cooper. I include Henry James. I include Henry Adams, uh, major writers. I include Charles Sumner, political figure. I include uh, Morse, who in, his, whose invention of the telegraph and the Morse code, and who also, when he went, was in France later to secure a, a patent for, the, for his uh, telegraph, French patent, met with Daguerre, Louis Daguerre, who invented photography, the daguerreotype, and with Daguerre's permission, Morse brought photography to America for the first time. Imagine, here's one man, brings back an American masterpiece, yes, it was a painting, brings back one of the most important inventions of all time, and brings back one of the, a second invention, which has transformed how we perceive reality in each other ever since. So um, I don't, and my medical students, keep in mind when these people went over to Paris, there were no schools of art. There were no schools of architecture. Richard Morris Hunt, H.H. Richardson, Louis Sullivan, Charles McKim, Stanford White, the greatest architects in our history, trained in Paris. Why? There was no school of architecture here. They all went to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. And you can't walk around uh, the, many of the major cities of our country and not see the evidence of exactly what they did, and in very often their own work done by they themselves. Uh, Medic medical training, medical practice in this country in the years before the Civil War was pathetically behind the times. It was, it was brutal. Most doctors had never gone to medical school. Most doctors had trained with other doctors who had never gone to medical school. And the best of our medical schools in Pennsylvania, at Harvard, were very small with faculties of maybe five or six, seven doctors. They didn't make the rounds then, but there were two immensely important barriers to progress in medicine, both of which were social, not scientific or educational. The first was that an American woman, and this was true right up through the Civil War, an American woman would have preferred to die than to have a man examine her body. And since all doctors were men, many, tragically, many thousands of American women died for that reason. Now what that also meant is that no student ever got to make the rounds with a doctor to examine female patients. In Paris, there was no such stigma. So they not only could make the rounds with, a, with a, an experienced physician, one of great, some of the greatest uh, physicians in, in all of Europe, but they examined patients of both genders. The second very important holdback was that cadavers were greatly frowned on, the use of them, both by religious groups, people felt it was morally uh, uh, repugnant, and in many cases, many states, the majority of states for quite a while, cadavers were illegal. So what did that mean? It meant that all bodies used for dissection were obtained on the black market. They were, they were the products of grave robbers, and Consequently, they were very expensive. Now that meant that a student in one of our medical schools almost never got to dissect a body or an arm or a foot or a leg or something. So when it came time for them to operate on an arm or a leg or a foot, they were operating on someone who was alive for the first time. 
not knowing really what they were doing. And up until about late 1840s, with no anesthetic. <clears throat> now, the advent of ether was one of the transforming uh, events of our whole existence as human beings. We tend to think of the French as only important in the arts, which they certainly have been, particularly in painting and in music. But in science and medicine and technology, they were way out front too. The Brooklyn Bridge stands on a system of caissons developed by the French. Washington Roebling went to Paris, went to France to study with French engineers to see how it was done in order to build the Brooklyn Bridge. The work of Louis Pasteur we all know about. Uh, French medicine, while it wasn't in any way uh, up to what we know as, as modern medicine today, was light years ahead of all of what we were doing at the time. And those American students who went over there, and they went over several hundred every year, came back and changed American medicine, brought it up to the forefront in less than a generation. It was a major event. So that when Oliver Wendell Holmes went back to, to Paris as a man in his late 70s for a walk down memory lane, there were very few medical students enrolled at the Ecole de Médecine because there wasn't a need for American medical students to go there anymore because what they needed was here. Mr. McCullough, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, the very yes. famous French author who wrote Democracy in America, made many incredible observations about this country, uh, one of which was uh, America is great because America is good, and when America ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. What impact do you think his work and Democracy in America had on the views of, of France to the United States and the United States to France? The impact of his work was uh, phenomenal and uh, immeasurable, huge. Tocqueville, by the way, came over here at exactly the time these young Americans were going over there. And he came over here not speaking a word of English. And, uh, and he went everywhere, and he had his eyes and ears open, and he went back and wrote one of the most important books ever, and a book from which we all still can learn. Uh, he wrote about our strengths, he wrote about our weaknesses, he got us. He got us in a way nobody ever had and very few have since. An immensely important person in, American, under, in America's understanding of ourselves. Can't, can't be overestimated. And very readable, by the way. Three more questions. Yes, sir. Uh, could you, uh, I know you cover it in your book, and I haven't read the book yet, so I can't give any speeches about it. Uh, one way or the other. Well, the test isn't until September, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll work very hard yeah. between now. Could you say a few words about uh, Mark Twain and the influence uh, that he, his experience in Paris had yes. on his writings? Uh, when Rosalie and I uh, go to Paris, we stay in the Hotel de Louvre, which is right, as the name suggests, by the Louvre, between the Louvre and the Palais Royal. It's a wonderful old hotel. I highly recommend it. It couldn't be more uh, conveniently located, everything. And that's the hotel, same hotel where Mark Twain stayed. It's where Hawthorne stayed. It's where Morse and his family stayed and many others. And you can really feel that you're in their shoes, so to speak. Twain was only there briefly. And, uh, and he didn't like it very much. Um, and he was, he was pretty snide about it. And I have a feeling that if he'd stayed a little longer and calmed down a bit, he might have, uh, <laughs> he might have gotten a little more below, below the surface. He was, he was having a good time, and of course he was very funny, making fun of the French. And that book, interestingly, and I never knew this until I worked on, on this book of my own, that book uh, in which he writes about it is called Innocence Abroad, was the most popular of all his books at the time he was alive. Uh, had the largest audience of any of them by far. Um, Emerson and Hawthorne were influenced by Paris, but not overly. Uh, I, I didn't explore much into the people uh, who weren't much influenced by it. Uh, while, um, Winslow Homer, for example, clearly one of our most important painters of all, 
spent time in Paris, studied in Paris, but his work wasn't greatly changed because his work, he, is, he was matured, he, he developed as a painter by the time he went there. Uh, whereas if you look at these, some of these other people, they were immensely changed by the experience. They were, they were made by the experience. Of the writers, um, uh, Henry Adams, who professed not to like Paris, but managed to get there just about every year, um, <laughs> he wrote uh, Mo, his great book, uh, Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres, uh, about the, uh, the medieval cathedral as the ultimate expression of the human spirit. A very powerful book, very difficult book in many ways, but ver worth, worth looking into uh, by all means. Henry James wrote uh, his uh, book, The American, and his book, The Ambassadors, uh, both set in Paris. Very important books about Paris and very um, um, uh, good examples of how Americans responded to it then as different from how the Americans were responding to it after World War I. World War I, as Barbara Tuckman said, is like a great burnt path through history. Everything is different after it. And uh, we, we have to understand that. Uh, I began to think a little bit about the lost generation and it occurred to me the lost generation wasn't lost. Uh, they knew exactly where they were. They were in Paris. Uh, <laughs> but the lost generation underneath the surface is, there's a lot of self-pity there. They're very sorry for themselves. They don't like their country. They feel uh, in exile, expatriates. The people I'm writing about, that is not the case. And I felt that the lost generation, the Gertrude Stein, Fitzgerald, Hemingway bunch, had been written about over and over and over again. And sometimes very well, to be sure, and often by themselves very well. <laughs> um, the period of Adams Jefferson Franklin in Paris in the 18th century, which is a very important period, and when our interest and in our, our attachment to Paris really begins, when Jefferson's bringing back all those ideas and all those books and all the architectural uh, inspiration with him, for example. But I felt I had done that, I had written about that in my book about John Adams. But here was this period of 70 years that most people had never even looked at. And I know we should stop, but I just want to add, I want to end with one thing I haven't even mentioned yet. In the course of writing this book, I and my research colleague, Mike Hill, came upon what I consider one of the greatest lucky strikes, biggest finds of my 40 plus years as a writer about American history, a diary kept by a man named Elihu Washburn, who was our minister to France, our ambassador to France, during the Franco-Prussian War and the horrific commune that followed, the civil war in Paris that followed, one of the most um, appalling, um, vicious uh, human eruptions in all of history. The very worst of human, human nature erupted with the with staggering consequences in life and suffering. And this man, Washburn, who grew up on a hard scrabble farm in Western Maine, one of 10 children with very little education, was one of four brothers who were all elected to the United States Senate or Congress, House of Representatives, at the same time from four different states one of them was his brother Lewis, was the man who first used the word Republican to describe the new party that was forming in abolition to slavery. This man, when he was appointed by General Grant to be our ambassador, was scorned in the most, uh, uh, well, familiar fashion for many of us as being a, a farm boy, a, 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 a hick, who had no feeling for diplomacy, who had no sense of international relations, exactly the wrong type for any diplomatic post, let alone our ambassador to France, the most important diplomatic post. 
This man turned out to be one of the greatest diplomats we've ever had because he refused to leave Paris. Now, when the Germans were marching on Paris at the start of the Franco-Prussian War, it was very clear they were going to surround the city and put it under siege. All the other diplomats from all the other major powers left town, except Washburn, who refused to leave because he felt it was his duty to stay as long as there were other Americans there in the city. And what he went through, both during the siege, when for nearly five months the Germans were starving Paris into surrender, and what he went through during the Commune after is one of the most amazing stories I've ever read, or any of you will ever read when you read it. And it's all in a diary he kept that was unknown in its full extent until just about two years ago. Dave, may I point out the local connection, or would you like to? That's no, please do, because I didn't know about it until you told me. Um, uh, Ambassador Washburn's great-great-grandson is Ray Washburn, who everybody knows here in Dallas. Washburn never stopped reading, never stopped learning. Uh, he was, and again, here's a man who probably had not much more than an eighth grade education, though he kept on reading, kept on studying, eventually got a law degree. Uh, his use of the English language, it's, it's, it's humbling. Uh, when you read what we pass off as the written word, uh, today. I don't know if you know this, but several business schools are now requiring a writing course of their students. These are all graduates of universities and college, a writing course because they, they find their incoming students are incapable of writing a presentable letter or report. That's a terrible commentary on the job we're doing in raising our children, not just the teaching, how we're doing it how we're doing it. If there's a problem with education in America today, it's us. We, the parents, the grandparents, not just the teachers. Don't, don't let us please leave all the responsibility to the teachers. It's up to us. And believe me, we've got to do a better job of teaching our children and grandchildren the history of their own country. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.